Many years ago, the forerunner of Jesus, John the Baptist, said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then we hear a song like this that reminds us to come to Jesus. To come to Jesus. I think this was a song uh, that we sang during Lord's Supper, right? Did we do I think so, yeah. Come to Jesus, come to Jesus. How do we come to Jesus? Whether we've been in the Christian faith for many years or not, how do we all come to Jesus? Well, what we're going to see this afternoon is we come by means of repentance and faith. That's always been the case. Come to the end of yourselves. Repent. Deal with your sin. Come clean with God. Come to Jesus. So we're going to look at that, as well as living a life that is pleasing to Jesus, that is pleasing to God. So I'm going to draw your attention now to uh, Luke chapter 3. And I'm going to read from, uh, so it goes Matthew, Mark, Luke. So the third of the Gospels, Luke chapter 3. And um, I'm going to begin reading at verse 1. And then we're going to follow that up as we continue our catechetical series on um, the, the kind of life that is pleasing to God. There's a lot of people in the world who believe in a God, and I suppose they want to, in the end, receive the smile of God and not his frown. And they think, as long as I lead this good life, I'm going to get that, that smile of God, not the, the frown. But what does it mean to lead a good life? We're going to look at that. All right. So Luke chapter 3. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother tetrarch of the region of Iturea, and Traconitus, and Lasanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down. And thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, uh, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. 
His winnowing fork is in his hands to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So, with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. So, we're going to end our reading at that point. And I want to draw your attention now to uh, question answer uh, 91. And this picks up on the uh, theme and is in the context of what we considered, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, the whole matter of conversion. Now, conversion in the Bible consists of two things, repentance, that is a turning from sin, and also faith, entrusting oneself to Jesus Christ in faith for the forgiveness of sins. Okay, that is, that is conversion. And in the Bible, conversion is an about face, where you turn from one direction and you turn to another, where you turn from sin and depravity, you become convicted in your soul and your conscience that the way you're living is not the way to go, and you confess your sins in the name of Jesus, and you seek forgiveness in Jesus' name. And when you do that, there's no doubt that when you confess your sins in the name of Jesus and entrust yourself to him, your sins are forgiven. The, the matter that we're dealing with here this afternoon is, okay, so you claim then to be a Christian, you claim then to be converted. Well, what about your life? See, the question is, does your life reflect a godly life and a life that's lived for Christ? Well, how do you define that? What does that look like? Question answer 91. I'm going to read the question, and then let's give the answer. And it has to do with the kind of life that we live and the kind of works that we perform or deeds that are pleasing to God. So here's the definition of it and the answer. So what are actually, by definition, good works? And let's say together... Only those which are done out of true faith in accordance with the law of God and to his glory, and not those based on our own opinion or on the precepts of men. Now, let me parse that a little bit for us. Because um, on a bit of a personal note, in, in working with, with individuals throughout the years, and maybe you, you can identify with this if you worked with people who are grappling with the claims of Christ, when, when, you, when, you, when you ask them the question, uh, what do you think about yourself? Do you, do you believe actually that you're a good person? And invariably, people will say, well, I, am, I, I know I'm not perfect, but I believe I'm, I'm, I'm basically a good person. And the reason why they say that is because when they evaluate themselves in, uh, in light of other people in the world, right, you're always going to find somebody worse than you are, right? So they'll say, I know I'm not perfect, but at least... Um, I'm, I haven't killed anybody, that always comes up. I'm not stealing from anybody, and I'm not cheating on my spouse, and, and these kinds of things. And so they'll say, I'm not perfect, but I'm generally good. But I, you know, if you ever share your faith with somebody, I want you to think about this when you hear this, because invariably that's what you're going to hear. You, 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 you have to, at some point, deal actually with the definition of what is actually good. Because oftentimes, people will define what is good on the basis of what I call horizontal considerations. That is, they base how good they are on, on the basis of what they see around us. And again, and as I said, you're always going to see somebody worse than you are. But when you share your faith with someone, and, and this is what I have to do always, in every case with dealing with someone who's grappling with the claims of Christ, I say to them, you've got to stop thinking horizontally only or exclusively, and you need to start thinking vertically. 
Because when you start thinking vertically and you start grappling with who God is and how holy God is and his expectations of us, which is not just I'll grade on a curve, but I demand perfection from you, then all of a sudden you realize, oh, okay, well, I guess I'm not as good <laughs> as I thought. The fact of the matter is, um, I don't care who you are, who we are, it doesn't matter, we're all in the same boat. We're all people in need of Jesus Christ. Yet, at the same time, we have to realize that, that though we are not put in a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ on, on the basis of our so-called good, because that never measures up to God, at the same time, Jesus says, if you love me, I want you to keep my commandments. And I want you to live as a response of gratitude for what I've done for you. I want you to lead a godly life. I want you to lead a good life according not to other people's definition, but according to God's definition. And so what is God's definition of a godly life? It means a life that's lived out of a true faith in Jesus Christ that conforms to the will of God and the standard of God and not our other standards, and also a life that is lived for the glory of God. Not to bring glory to oneself, but to bring glory to God. That's what's actually good. Not that standard out there of good, but what God deems as good. So I want to talk about the godly life, um, more particularly in terms of the language of our passage in another place of the Bible, it's called the fruit of repentance. We're all called to, to repent, believe in Jesus Christ, but we're also to show the fruit of repentance in our lives to demonstrate that our repentance is actually genuine. Okay, so to that end, I want to quickly draw your attention to the, to the passage before us from Luke chapter 3. Um, it revolves around a very significant figure in the Bible called John the Baptist, who was a cousin of Jesus and a forerunner of Jesus, and that is he prepared the way for Jesus. And there's a lot of things that we could say about John the Baptist. For the sake of time, I'm not going to get into the whole history of John the Baptist, but I will say this. If you know anything about John the Baptist, he was a fiery preacher. And he was convicted of this one message, and that is this. That as human beings... We all fall short of the glory of God and we all need to repent and we all need to believe in Jesus and we all need to be reconciled to God. And if we're going to be truly reconciled to God and be in a right relationship with him, not a relationship of frowning but of smiles, that means that we need to come to the end of ourselves. We need to, in the language of the Bible, we need to die to ourselves. We need to come to grips with who we are. And that is, those who offend God on a daily basis, we need to deal with that. We need to come clean with God. We need to repent of what the Bible calls our sin. We need to believe in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross for the forgiveness of our sin. We need to be baptized, and we need to live a life of fruit-bearing in order to demonstrate that our repentance and our faith in Jesus Christ is genuine. That's what it means to be a Christian, okay? That was the message of John the Baptist. That was the message, by the way, of our Lord Jesus. It, was the, it has been the message of every faithful preacher over the last 2,000 years since Jesus walked on this earth. Death to self, repentance, faith, baptism, a godly life. Okay, now, John preaches this, and like, like preaching today, you're always going to get one or two responses. Did you know that when, when preaching goes forth from this pulpit, whether it be myself or a guest pastor or whatever, that preaching never leaves any one of us the same. It always moves us in this direction or that direction. It either, when we hear the preaching of God's word, 
we're either going to just harden ourselves and become resentful, or our heart's going to become softened, and it's going to draw us to Jesus, either for the first time or in ongoing fashion. But, but the, word, the word never leaves us the same. As the Apostle Paul says, the word is either an aroma of life unto life or death unto death. Okay, now the reason I say that is because here you got John preaching, and he gets two reactions. So he's preaching before a great crowd, but there's two types of individuals in the crowd. One, their hearts get softened by his preaching. They ask, oh, now what are we supposed to do? And the other consists of a group in the crowd that's not identified in this passage, but it's identified elsewhere in Matthew chapter 3, which is a companion passage of this passage. And in Matthew chapter 3, you see that the ones who are kind of agitated by John's preaching are what we call Pharisees and Sadducees. And Pharisees and Sadducees, many of you know this, right? They're the religious leaders. And, and there's, there's, there's many things that I could say about Pharisees and Sadducees and say, okay, here's the difference between Pharisees and Sadducees. I, for the sake of time, I don't want to get into that now. What I want to focus on are the things that the Pharisees and Sadducees shared together. And the one fundamental thing that they shared together was what we call identity religion, which means that they, they placed their security and their standing with God on the basis of a shared history, uh, a shared background, shared culture, shared traditions. Some of their traditions were different, but fundamentally, a shared culture and history as those who belong to the Jewish race. Okay? So they shared a Jewish race, and they, they basically, their, their contention was this. As John is preaching repentance, and as the Pharisees are observing what's going on here, as John is preaching a crowd and people being prepared to be baptized, the, the Pharisees and Sadducees were thinking to themselves, as John is preaching repentance to them, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of their sins, they're basically saying, why do we need to repent? Aren't we Jews? Aren't we the children of Abraham? Aren't we identified in the Bible as a, a chosen race? A royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession, a holy nation. Don't these things apply to us? And if they do, then why do we need to repent? I mean, the Pharisees and Sadducees are looking people around them and saying, listen, God has chosen us to call people to repentance. Why do we need to repent? And the answer, though it's not explicit in the text, but you know this is going on with John. It's like, well, here's the thing. You need to repent because you're proud you're spiritually and theologically proud, and you're condescending to others. And we see the Pharisees and Sadducees being condescending to all kinds of people around them. John understands this, and this is why, if you take a look at verses 7 through 9, he has some very sharp words for them. And he said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. Who warned you, remember Matthew 3 talks, identifies these individuals as Pharisees and Sadducees. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit or fruits in keeping with repentance. In other words, show by your lives that you're actually repentant and not proud and condescending. And don't begin to say to ourselves, well, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Even now, or for Abraham, even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, does not bear good fruit. is cut down and thrown into the fire. It's like some Christians who, 
As a pastor, I rarely find people saying this out loud, but it's sometimes people fall into the idea, a little bit of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, like especially sometimes people who are raised in the church, they kind of go, well, you know, when they aren't pressed to repentance, a lot of times they'll, they'll, they'll um, uh, place their security in things like, well, you know I was baptized. You know my parents were Christians. You know that I'm a professing member of the church. You know I attend to the Lord's Supper regularly and all these kinds of things. You know you, 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 can, you can be in possession of all these things and yet be unrepentant, right? You can be in possession of all these things and not necessarily uh, reflecting and bearing what John talks about here as the fruit of repentance. That is a life that is actually lived for Christ. You're placing your security in these things rather than repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. It's a possibility. And of course, in preaching that has to be raised, we all have to ask ourselves the question, what do I actually place my security in? And how do I actually believe that I'm in a right relationship with God? Is it my baptism? Is it just my profession of faith? I mean, these things are very important. But am I placing my ultimate security in these things? Or am I placing my security actually in the person to who these things actually point? And that's Jesus. So, so there's a lot of presumption amidst the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And John's saying, you know what? You're proud and you're condescending. You don't even probably realize it. And so what you need to do is you need to repent and you need to be baptized. You need to bear the fruit of repentance. A man named Jack Miller um, once described repentance as, and you've heard me say this from the pulpit before, as coming clean with God. Um, another theologian named Gerhardus Voss talked about repentance as a return to sanity. You're not truly sane in the eyes of God unless you're repentant. So basically John is saying to, to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, listen, you need to die to yourselves. You, you, you need... You, you, you need to come clean with God and you need to return to sanity because right now you're deluding yourselves that you're okay with God when in fact you're not because you're not repentant. So repent, be baptized, bear the fruit of repentance. Now, if you take seriously the words of the New Testament which you read about with the Pharisees and Sadducees throughout this book, rarely are they ever that. So, so this is the Pharisees said. So this is the crowd, like I said earlier, they just kind of close their hearts to God. But there's, an, there's another group in the crowd that are actually opening their hearts to, to John, and he's, he's calling them, he's calling them to, to repentance and calling them to be baptized and, and to change their lives. And these are individuals who are actually grappling with that, their need to repent, and their need to be baptized by John, and and they're they're actually also commending themselves to the need to bear the fruit of repentance in their lives. How do we know that? Because as John is preaching, they're like, the same thing happened with Peter on Pentecost when he's preaching, right? Peter's preaching to all these individuals and John is preaching now. And what do they, what do, what, what do they say? Um, what should we do? What do we do? Pharisees and Sadducees weren't asking that question, but they were. What do we do? What do we do? And I want you to take a look at something. Take a look at verse 10 and following. The crowds asked him, what then shall we do? We need, in other words, what's the response that we should have to this preaching for repentance and baptism and the fruit of repentance? And he said to them, all right, well, whoever has two tunics, 
Then what he should do, he should share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what should we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you're authorized to do. Don't skim monies off the top and keep it for yourself. Be honest. Soldiers also asked him, and, and, and what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations and be content with your wages. In other words, don't use your power and your position and your authority as a soldier to build money out of people. Knock it off. Stop it. So you see what John is calling them to do. John is calling them to an about face. Don't extort money. Don't bilk money off the top. Don't, don't do any of that anymore. Don't be selfish. Be generous. In other words, he's saying, one way that you reflect repentance in your life is in your ethic, how you live your life before the face of God, quorum Deo, before the face of God, but also how you live before your neighbor. Question is, are you living a life for your neighbor? Are you showing your neighbor love? Are you showing your neighbor generosity? Are you showing your neighbor compassion? As Jesus says, you know them by their fruits. Again, raise the question, what kind of fruit are we bearing? Um, you know, the, the, the Apostle Paul says something similar to um, a king called King Agrippa in the book of Acts. Can you put that uh, text up there? Take a look at that. It's a very short text. The Apostle Paul is addressing King Agrippa, and he says, For I uh, declared in Damascus, Jerusalem, and Judea, and to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, and then notice, not only repent and turn to God, but also perform deeds in keeping with repentance. So, when you look at the Bible, and I know many of us know this already, but that's the nature of preaching sometimes, to remind us what we know to be true, but maybe perhaps for some of us not necessarily living, is that not only are we called to be a repentant people on a daily basis, but also throughout our lives there needs to be an indication that we have actually repented, come to the end of ourselves, and confessed our sins in the name of Jesus Christ and entrusted him by the way that we live our lives, by the fruits or the deeds that we perform in this life. Because in the Bible, never is there a divorce or a disconnect between faith and life, between words and deeds, between repentance and the fruit of repentance. Jesus, Jesus describes a true Christian like a tree. And a tree that bears, bears good fruit. Now, some of you on your property, you might have apple trees or cherry trees or whatever. And you know what? You're, you're not necessarily spraying that tree. And you know what? Every year you think, boy, wouldn't it be great to have great cherries or great apples or whatever? And they just come out kind of mealy. What does that really tell you? That tells you that not only are there bugs out there, but there's probably a problem with the health of that tree itself. Jesus himself, in the very simple teaching, says, you know what? A, 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 a true Christian, a genuine Christian, is like a, a tree that naturally bears good fruit. Not wormy fruit, but good fruit. And, and if you are a tree that's not bearing that kind of good fruit, according to the standards of the Lord, then what you find is that maybe, maybe you're not as health, healthy as you think. Jesus, be a healthy one. Be a healthy one. So what does it mean then to live a godly life in a way that's pleasing to God? Would you put the, the catechism up there if you would? All right. So what actually are good works? It's, it's so simple, somebody would probably say, well, you can, you can tell a good work from a bad work, right? 
Not necessarily. You don't know the heart of people. You don't know their motivation. You don't actually know if, if the good that they do is actually conforming to the standard that God sets in his word. And you don't know if they have a true faith or not. There's a lot of people do outward good, but not necessarily good that pleases God. So the question is, what's the kind of work that pleases God? It's the kind of work that comes, that arises from a genuine faith in Jesus Christ. The kind of work that pleases God conforms to his definition of what is good and not the world's. And the good that pleases God is a work that is not done to bring attention to oneself, look at me, but it's the kind of good that arises out of a heart that has at its center the glory of God and the magnification of his name. So I want you to think about this, and that is, um, at the end of the day, we all need to, to come to Jesus, and we need to, we need to confess these things. We need to own these three things that come in the form of a confession. First of all, Lord Jesus, I need to look to you as my example. Three E's I'll leave you with. Lord Jesus, I need to look to you as my example. Because when I evaluate myself in light of others, I look pretty good. But when I evaluate my life in light of your example, I know that I'm not good. And so I need your help. So Lord Jesus, help me to keep looking, not at others around me, but to keep looking at you. And when my spouse, for instance, fails me in this, when my wife claims one thing and lives another, or when my husband claims one thing and lives another, or somebody that I have such high esteem for, but then fails me, oh Lord, help me to remember that I need to look to you, Jesus. I need to be an imitator of you. My standard is found in you. We need to look to Jesus as our example. We need to look to Jesus as our the word is expiation in the Bible. That means the removal of sin. That, Lord, when I fail you as one who wants to live the fruit of repentance in my life, help me to realize that there is always forgiveness at the foot of the cross. And finally, oh, Lord, help me to look to you, Lord Jesus, not only for an example and expiation, but for empowerment. Because, man, I can't do this on my own. I can't lead the godly life that I need to, according to your definition of what is good, apart from your grace and your power and your spirit. Remember what Jesus says, always, okay? Remember your weakness, and therefore, um, look to me, says Jesus, for apart from me, you can't do anything. You can't do anything. So with that in mind, I want to come to prayer, and I, in prayer, and I want us to pray uh, I want to pray for these things for us. And then um, the uh, cell phone number is on the screen. I know it's a second service back to back. We run a little bit more tired on these Sundays. So if, if I have no questions, I have no questions. Otherwise, if I have a few questions, I might address maybe one, maybe two. But until then, um, let's uh, come to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, in many ways, it's such a, a simple teaching, but a very, very important teaching for us, Lord. Not only the need to repent, but the need to live a life of the fruit of repentance, ultimately resting in Jesus. Jesus, you are our example. Help us to keep looking to you. Jesus, you are our expiation. You are the person whom we find the forgiveness of sins and also the clothing of your righteousness that is so beautiful and gives us confidence before our Father. And Lord Jesus, we also thank you, not only that you are our example 
or expiation, but you are an empowerment. Lord Jesus, we need you daily. This whole race of sanctification and growth in you and godliness is so trying so much of the time, Lord, because we, we struggle with the remnants of sin in our lives. We want to be faithful. We want to we want to do that, Lord, for your glory. And we want to live as a joyful and confident people. And Lord, we want to be a witness to the nations around us, to the lives that we live. So help us in that. And we know, Lord, that you are accustomed to answering these kinds of prayers because, Lord, they're, they're asked in the right motive and with the right desire and the right end. So God, grant your answer to this prayer, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.